Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Hello, holy friends. We are so happy you're here with us for this amazing program called Repentance as the Transformation of Self through the call of the other. And we are fortunate to be here today um, with our, our teacher in Israel, Dr. Tanya White, who is an international lecturer, writer, and educator with a focus on Tanakh and contemporary Jewish thought. She is senior lecturer at Matan Women's Institute for Torah Studies and teaches at other institutions, including Pardes and LSJS, which is the London School of Jewish Studies. Tanya holds a doctorate in Jewish philosophy from Bar-Ilan University and is the recipient of the Shoup Fellowship. I hope I said that right. The Shoup Fellowship for Outstanding Students, a collection of her articles, blogs, and published material can be viewed on her blog page, www.contemplatingtorah.wordpress.com. Dr. Tanya White, thank you for being here. Thanks so much. That actually updates my webpage, so if anyone's interested, I can send a new webpage, but anyway. Um, thank you for having me. This is really exciting to be with all of you. And uh, we'll get straight to it. So welcome, everyone. Um, I'm going to share my screen, um, but before I do so, I want to give, uh, by way of an introduction, a bit of an anecdote um, really related to, to, um, to the class, to, to what we're going to learn today. Um, so a few weeks ago, there was a, a news kind of, it was on the news and they have afterwards these news articles that they add on at the end. And when I was watching it, what the, they were talking about was they were asking the question, why do people have children? And that was really the focus of this kind of news article. And they were specifically interviewing people here in Israel. And one of the people they interviewed was um, the Robert Orman, though he's a game theorist, a mathematician, he's actually a Nobel Prize winner, a religious, um, thank you very much, a religious, um, a, a religious Nobel Prize winner who is, also game theorist and a mathematician and, and many other things. And they they went to him to interview him and ask him, you know, logically speaking, you know, through all the game theory, is there any logical, pragmatic reason to have children? And his answer was that essentially there really isn't. And especially, well, perhaps maybe to have one child in order to just continue your genes, but otherwise there's no real reason to have children. And then they asked him, how many children do you have? And he smiled and he said, I have seven. And at the end, of the, and then they went through, they interviewed a whole different variety and diverse kind of um, diverse bunch of people. Some were religious and had many children. Some were just had less. Some were non-religious and had seven or eight children. And some were um, non-religious and had no children. And one woman specifically had chosen not to have any children at all and not to get married. And they wanted to essentially do a survey of why people made those specific choices. But the most amusing part was right at the end, after Orman had basically said to them, you know, there's no real logical reason to have more than one child. They then asked that the, the interviewer asked him, so why do you have seven? 
And he smiled and he said that having seven children or what children give us is not something that can be proven in theories or in equations. And he essentially said that what a child does and what children do is to draw you outside of yourself, to allow you to see that there's something other in the world than the I. I call that self-transcendence. And I think a lot of people would call that self-transcendence. And he said that children give you a kind of joy, a kind of happiness that is not measured and can't be measured in material evaluations. It transforms you. It transforms the self. And essentially what he was saying was that joy comes when we move outside of ourselves. Now I'm going to come back to this a little bit later. I want to then then now move on to a second a second kind of anecdote and that is or, or I should say second idea and that is over the last few years and thank goodness we can say that we're moving past it but during the idea of COVID during corona during that period there was so much shaming and so much rebuking and we were really faced with a true dilemma because on the one hand there was a need sometimes to rebuke especially before we had the vaccines, people who were walking around and, you know, breaking the rules, not wearing masks. And you ask yourself, what, how are you meant to approach that specific scenario? Again, in the world in which we live, in social media, how do we manage that line between shame and rebuke? Now, they may, the two anecdotes that I bought may seem worlds apart, but they're not actually that different because in both of these examples, what we are focusing on is the role of the other. How much do we need the other in order to inform the I? How much of our self-identity, how much of who we are is informed by the other. And I'll take it one step further. I'll ask the question, how much of our self-transformation is informed by the other? How much do we need something or someone outside of the self to cause us to reflect on changing the eye. Taking both of those ideas or having both of those ideas in mind, I want to jump straight in and here I'm gonna share the screen. Okay, you should be able to all see before you the source sheet. Um, so I've called the class Repentance as the Transformation of Self Through the Call of the Other. And I bought for you um, by way of introduction um, a quote from a French novelist, Marcel Proulx, hope I pronounce his name right. Um, and he says as follows, he's speaking here specifically about art and about creativity, but he says something really profound. He, he says as follows, a pair of wings, a different respiratory system, which enabled us to travel through space would in no way help us. For if we visited Mars or Venus while keeping the same senses, they would clothe everything we could see in the same aspects as the things of the earth. The only true voyage, the only bath in the fountain of youth would not be to visit strange lands, but to possess other 
eyes, to see the universe through the eyes of another, of a hundred others, to see the hundred universes that each of them sees, that each of them is. And this we do with great artists, with artists like those, we do really fly from star to star. And what Marcel Pruhi really is saying to us is that there comes a moment in, in our lives where we recognize that in order to see reality in a different way, we have to exit our own subjective existence. We have to recognize that there exists something outside of ourselves, outside of the eye. And in order to do that requires us to very much look through the eyes of the other, to be radically amazed as Heschel talks, but not just to be radically amazed from the perspective of the self, to be radically amazed by looking at things through the eyes of the other. And here really comes the notion of what is the role of the other? How does the other inform ourselves? And here I want to look at Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, am I scrolling? Can you see me scrolling down? Yeah, excellent. Okay. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, um, who is my teacher and my mentor, um, writes in his last book, Morality, um, about the notion of the other and ethics of the other. And he tells a story um, about one time when he was drowning. He had gone on his honeymoon with Elaine and he'd gone to swim. He'd never been taught to swim. So he decided he was going to dip his feet in the water. And as he walked into the water, all of a sudden, the ground um, kind of left him from under his feet and he started drowning. And he saw his death coming and he was holding his hands in the air. And I'm going to read, with that in mind, I'm going to read what he says. He says as follows, we can easily forget some of the most important distinctions in the moral life between guilt cultures and shame cultures, between retribution and revenge. The difference between them is fundamental and turns on the question, is justice personal or impersonal? Revenge is personal. I and my group have been wronged, therefore I and my group must do wrong to you in return. Retribution is impersonal. That's what justice is. So first he speaks about the idea of guilt and shame. And this goes back to the second anecdote that I spoke about. How do we walk that very narrow path between, on the one hand, rebuking somebody for something that is blatantly dangerous or blatantly affecting another person, or maybe even affecting them, the person themselves, smoking? Or, for example, I've seen here in Israel, unfortunately, um, uh, adults who, or parents who put their children, their newborn babies or their two-year-olds on their laps and drive around the Moshav where I live. And I always ask myself, how do you give rebuke without it turning into shaming, without it being nasty? And I think this is what Rabbi Sachs is touching on here, the difference between a shame culture and a guilt culture. So he continues and he says, in a minute, we're going to come back to his story about self-help. Guilt cultures make a sharp distinction between the sinner and the sin. The act may be wrong, but the agent's integrity as a person remains intact. Okay? A guilt culture is not one that destroys the subject, is not one that destroys the I. That is why guilt can be relived by remorse, confession, restitution, and resolve never to behave that way again. In guilt cultures, there's repentance and forgiveness. Shame is not like that. It is a stain in the sinner that cannot be fully removed. And then he talks about this idea of how do you, 
how do you um, create a shame or a guilt culture? How, do, how are those two cultures created? And here he speaks about the idea of self-help. And he, in a sense, he, although he says he does think self-help books can be useful, he does berate a lot of the self-help books. And he says as follows, that, and, and he talks about this idea about drowning and recognizing that he could not save himself. He had to be saved by someone outside of himself. And he says, that for me has always been what help is like. You put out a hand and someone seizes it and lifts you to safety. Self-help would not have worked at all. I was the problem, not the solution. Help for me has always been other help. So I don't mean criticism of such books, still less those of we who read them. But one thing's always puzzled me from the outset, the obvious thing, self surely is where it begins, not where it ends. It's the problem, not the solution. If I look back on my life, I discovered that there was always someone else who set me on a new trajectory. I suspect the same is true for most people. Someone who was there when we needed it, who listened as we pulled out our problems, who gave us encouraging word when we were about to give up. Or maybe it was actually someone who looked us in the eyes and told us the honest truth that we're self-obsessed, that we're wallowing in our emotions. There's a fascinating passage in the Talmud describing an event in the third century that tells of a rabbi who had power of healing. When he laid his hands on someone who was ill, who was cured, then continues the Talmud, he fell ill himself and some, sent someone to fetch another rabbi to heal him. The Talmud asked, why could he not heal, cure himself? And the Talmud answers, a prisoner cannot release himself from prison. It takes someone else to turn the key to, that unlocks the door. And Rabbi Sachs continues and he says, if you read any story about transformation, it has a significant other. And here we get to that question. What is the role of the other in our own self-transformation? In the time of our repentance, in our own repentance, do we only need to focus on the I or is the significant other something that can allow us to go through the process of repentance, of tshuva? Is it something that is needed, that is imperative to the tshuva process? And if so, to what degree does the other come to shame, to destroy, to fragment the I, the self? Or does the other come to build, construct? How should we give criticism? How should we receive criticism? And what's the role of the other? I bought a source from you from my, another one of my teachers um, who was the head of the, uh, the Department of Jewish Philosophy in Barilan, um, uh, Professor Ephraim Meir, an incredible human being. Um, he himself is a convert um, to Judaism. He is he, his life work is, inter, is about interfaith dialogue and understanding between different religions. He really is truly, if you meet him, you'll understand, he really is truly somebody who lives what he preaches, what he believes. And you see when you meet him, that you really see the spark of divineness within a human being. 
Um, so when I read him to you, I'm not just reading some academic literature. I'm really reading the life of someone who, who really speaks and, and lives what he believes. And he, in his book, Dialogical Thought and Identity, which really is quite an academic book, but still definitely worth reading. He, by the way, also was a student of Emmanuel Levinas, and he translated Emmanuel Levinas's books to Hebrew. He always says one of his favorite quotes is, I make I translated Levinas and I made him more Levinas than Levinas. That's always one of his favorite quotes because he believes that the Hebrew language works much better in Levinas's writing. For example, the panim and the panim, the face and the bifnim, the, the inside, the internal and self-identity and the face. And he always uses, he when he translated it, he uses that play of language and it's really quite incredible. But here I brought for you, um, here I brought you something really beautiful that he speaks about in terms of the other and the importance of the other informing the self, the self, right, informing our own identity. So he says as follows, um, one's identity, hold on one second, sorry, um, one's identity is indeed shaped in context, but one's identity is also out of context. One changes. Human beings alter as do things and words which also change course of time the other challenges me to become self-different undetermined so beautiful right he says as human beings part of our nature is to change we are meant to change and the other allows me challenges me to become different to change to transform in constructing myself I permanently change but this permanent change is ultimately made possible by the challenge that the other human being represents to me. His appeal urges me to become self-transcendent. And that's that word I said right at the beginning when I spoke about Robert Uman and the challenge of why we have children, the idea of self-transcendence. This challenge of the I by the other may shed new light upon the traditional Jewish saying, it is greater to be commanded and do than not be commanded and do. Higher identity therefore is not based primarily upon one's will and willingness. It stems from one being command, one's being commanded by the other. And here we can already hear the rings of Levinas. Those of you that are familiar with Levinas, we can hear the rings of Levinas in our ears because Levinas believes, right? Many Orthodox Jews will believe that God is the other. God is the ultimate other that prescribes or commands the eye. Levinas believes that the command, the ethical imperative to act morally is not necessarily coming from the voice of the divine, but actually comes from the face of the other. It's the face of the other that arouses within me the, the moral imperative to act towards the other ethically. And this is exactly what um, uh, Ephraim Meir is saying to us here. Okay, um, I'm going to skip a little bit of what he says and get right, just right to the end. Uh, the second to last paragraph. I develop another view of the self in the depth of which there is loftiness. I think that the self is called to self-transcendence. This does not imply that the self is negating itself, but that the self is oriented towards the other. Okay? And then he speaks about dialogical philosophy that doesn't mean that we negate the self, but rather it means we find the self 
or the self is transformed in dialogue with the other. So again, what we've seen from Rabbi Sachs and from Professor Fry in the ear, but in very different ways, but for both of them, what they what they are echoing is the importance of the of the other, the role of the other in our self-transformation, in our identity, in our character development. I'm going to skip Rav Shagal um, for the sake of time. Rav Shagal um, is a very, very important uh, postmodern religious thinker. He passed away a few years ago. He died at the very young age of 58, Rabbi Shimon Gershon Rosenberg. Um, those of you that are not familiar with him, he there's some books of his that have been translated. I highly recommend him. Um, he bases his thought very interestingly on, on all different kinds of, he brings in all different sources, but it's also very mystical. And yet again, here he also speaks. He brings in Sartre here and, and various other existentialist philosophers and psychologists. And he here again talks about this idea that self-actualization self in Judaism is a very narrow road, a very um, careful balance between on the one side, one hand, the self and the I and the, the importance of the I, and on the other hand, the importance of the other, the importance of being part of a minyan, for example, of 10 people, of, of being part of something bigger than oneself. And now we jump to the time of the year that we are in, and that is El. And I'm gonna take you centuries earlier to the Rambam, to Hilchot Shuvah in his Mishnah Torah. And there's two specific um, laws that I brought for you because I want to show you that even in the laws of the Rambam and in the laws of repentance of Shuvah, the Rambam, Maimonides here brings for us the proof that the call to repentance, the call to transformation comes from outside the self. So I'm going to read for you the first and the second um, part that I brought. In the manner, in like manner, did all the prophets criticize Israel until they turned in repentance. By the way, I, I should have said from the beginning, if anyone wants or has any, any questions, don't hesitate to open your microphones or write in the chats. Um, I'm more than open to, um, to questions and to comments. You don't need to put up your hand, just open your mic. Um, and I, I'd love to have the interactions, obviously much more difficult when we're on Zoom, but um, I'm really happy to open it up. In like manner, did all the prophets criticize Israel until, until they turned in repentance. It is therefore necessary to appoint over each and every community in Israel a great scholar of mature age, God-fearing since his early youth and loved by them. Note, note what it says here, okay? If you want someone in charge and to tell and to criticize, it has to be someone that's loved by everybody, right? God-fearing, okay? To preach the public, to preach the public and to turn them to repentance. But he who despises criticism does not come to hear the preacher and does not pay attention to his words. He therefore holds on to his sins, which to his eyes appear to be good. What the Rambam, what Maimonides is saying here is so profound because he's actually coming from two directions. He's telling us that, he's telling us exactly the two things that we spoke about. Number one, he's saying that in order for us to repent and transform, we very often need somebody to come from the outside and to open ourselves or, or to put a mirror in front of us and to say to us, look, this is where you're going wrong. This is what you're doing wrong. And that we need to be open to that because otherwise we won't truly be able to repent. So that's one thing he's saying. The second thing he's saying here, which I think is even more profound, is that the person that has to be in charge of giving rebuke 
somebody that has to be God-fearing, somebody that has to be loved, and somebody that is loving. So what does that tell us? It tells us, and here we go back to what Rabbi Sachs said at the beginning, it tells us that there is a very big difference between guilt and shame. Guilt okay, can be constructive. Guilt can allow us to change, can show us where we've gone wrong. Shame is destructive. Shame means that the person who's coming to shame is not interested in your transformation or even in your eye. And it also means that the person that receives the shaming will never truly transform because they will be ensconced in the destructive elements of self. So that's the first thing I see from the Ramah. The second is the call of the Shofar, which again is a call from outside of the self. It's a different kind of call. It's not a person. It's not a human being, but it's still a sound, a noise, an awakening that comes from outside the self. Notwithstanding that, the blowing of the ram's horn, again, I've gone back to the sheets, trumpet on Rosh Hashanah is a scriptural statute. Its blast is symbolic as if saying, yea, that sleep, you stir yourself from your sleep and you're, you're sleeping, you're slumbering, emerge from your slumber, examine your contact, conduct, turn in repentance and remember your creator. They that forget the truth because of the vanities of time who err all of their years by pursuing vanity and idleness, which are of neither benefit nor salvation, care for your souls, improve your ways and your tendencies. Let each one of you abandon his evil path and his thought, which is not pure. So again, what we see in the run run is that the, the sound of the shofar, the call of the shofar, is something that awakens us to change. So both of these talk about this notion of change as coming from the outside, change as something that the catalyst, I should say, for change is something outside of the self. And now I, I want us to move to this notion that we were speaking about, the idea of the change of the other. Yeah, sure, Judy, sure, go ahead. Uh, doesn't, doesn't all this need for community and call to shuva, to, to shuva and to healing argue against harem and against shunning? Against, what did you say? I didn't hear the first word. Wouldn't all of the, all of these calls, uh, the, the, the idea that you need the outside, you need the community, you need the catalyst, doesn't, isn't that an argument against shaming and, uh, and shunning and harem? Hundred percent, hundred percent, not even a question. Um, and I think that in a minute, and and you're literally going to take me to the next source. Um, there's a lot to be said. It's really the uh, it's the topic of an entire course, right? Um, which would really be about the idea of excommunication, and um, you know, um, even today, book bans and various other things. Um, and there's a lot to say on that. I don't believe, as you can probably tell from, I guess you might call it the polemic of the shir. I don't believe um, that that's the Jewish way. Um, I definitely don't believe it may have been the Jewish way that suited a more middle, a, a kind of medieval world or even pre-modern world. But certainly in our modern and definitely in our post-modern world where our consciousness is expanding and we're looking at things very differently, 
Um, there's no room for shaming and there's definitely no room for excommunication within the Jewish tradition. Um, and, and I'll show you what, what I believe is, is the path is, is, I would say, is a culture that is infused with constructive guilt rather than destructive shame. Um, and, and I'm going to show you also where I see it, not just I see it in the biblical sources. Obviously, I brought for you all contemporary thinkers here, but I'm also now going to jump back to the biblical sources and even the Talmudic sources themselves. Mona. Thank you. So I, I, I think this is so interesting. I'm really uh, excited about your teaching. I want to just say about shame and guilt that Martin Buber differentiated between healthy guilt and neurotic guilt, toxic guilt. And I... Yeah feel very strongly that we need to differentiate between toxic shame and healthy shame or shaming someone else versus feeling ashamed, which can actually be crucial for teshuva. There's some research that showed that when a person had had an affair and the couple were trying to repair, it was the person who had the affairs shame, not being shamed, but showing signs of shame, looking down and really saying, shame is, I don't want to be, the, I can't believe I'm the person who did that to you. It's yeah. not just I can't believe about that act, but that I am that person. And I think in Judaism, certainly the, the notion of busha is really crucial as part of teshuva. So I want to try to um, put in a word for healthy shame, as long as it's not shaming someone else. So um, you're reminding me of her name's gone from my head, but the Belgium um, couples therapist. Uh, what's her name? Do you know who I'm talking about, Mona? She's 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 brilliant. She has podcasts. Hedy Schleffer? Are you talking about Hedy Schleffer? No, yeah. no, no. So she, I uh, can't remember what her name is. Oh, Esther remember. Esther Perel, thank yeah. you, Esther Perel. <laughs> so, um, thank you. So she speaks a lot about that. And she even has those podcasts where she does, where you listen in on a couple's therapy and you see that play out the entire time. It's fascinating. I bought for you in the source after the next source, I bought for you a, a more, I would say a more, um, how would you call it, populist writer, Brene Brown, who um, speaks a lot, you know, she did all of her research was on the idea of vulnerability and how shame is linked into vulnerability. So we're going to, we're going to look at that because I a hundred percent agree with you. I mean, I think kind of it's more semantic, what we call it, whether we call it guilt, you know, Rabbi Sachs calls it guilt cultures and shame cultures. She calls it something slightly different and you're calling it constructive shame versus destructive shame. I think in some ways it's semantics, but we're all saying the same thing. So I, I definitely uh, concur with everything that you've said, 100%. So I'm going to move to, so let me just show it to you now from, from biblical sources and from, from Talmudic sources. So one biblical source I brought for you, and by the way, this was fascinating because when I was preparing this class, I actually prepared this class, originally gave it um, during Corona. So it was very poignant because it was really talking about this idea of shaming and you know, and people were really deep in it at the time. Um, thank goodness we kind of moved a little bit past that now. But but I think it's still very much in the, especially in the culture that we live in today on social media, the shame culture that we have. It, it's so dangerous and toxic. And I think it's, it's very important to, to open up the dialogue and speak about it. So if you look at Sefer Vayikra, um, it's very, very interesting. So let me just... Um, on a second. Okay, so here, and this was fascinating because when I went, I wanted to find the source. And when I went to the source, 
it, it just blew my mind because look what it says. Okay, so first we have the source in Okay, so don't deal, don't go and say bad things about your countrymen and, and don't, you know, um, profit from the blood of your fellow. It's not a great translation, right? Um, I am I am Hashem. But here, and this is really the key, before we get to the mitzvah, to the commandment of tochacha, which is rebuke, right? Right? That you should rebuke your fellow men if they're doing something wrong. Before the Torah says that, and I didn't even realize this, what does it say? Do not hate your brother in your heart. And then, only then can you rebuke him. Meaning what? You cannot rebuke somebody if you hate them because that, that leads to shaming. That is shaming and that will only lead to shaming. However, if you, and it goes back to what the Rambam says, appoint a leader over you who will help you to transform yourself, but only a leader who loves you because only if you truly love the other person can you adequately, and I would even say in a healthy way, rebuke them. If you hate that person in your heart, the shaming will only be toxic, okay? Um, and Rashi speaks, Rashi beautifully says, and here, by the way, it continues, that you shouldn't um, carry, um, because you shouldn't carry his sin, meaning why should you rebuke him? Because you don't want him to sin, right? And what does Rashi say? He says, though rebuking him, you shall not expose him to shame. Rashi says, even if you need to rebuke him, do not shame him. Okay, do not shame him. Renee Brown, and here I'm bringing in kind of all a whole amalgamation of different sources from different places and different time zones and different, um, uh, a very eclectic mix of sources. But Brene Brown here in Daring Gravy, she says as follows. She says, based on my research and the research of other shame researchers, I believe that there's a profound difference between shame and guilt. I believe that guilt is adaptive and helpful. It's holding something we've done or failed to do up against the values, our values and feeling discomfort, psychological discomfort. And that really is what guilt is when we, we should feel discomfort at this time of the year during Elul. Yes, we should all feel uncomfortable because we're putting a mirror in front of ourselves and we're saying, have we really lived up to what we want to be, to our potential, right? I define shame as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. I don't believe shame is helpful or productive. In fact, I think shame is much more likely to be the source of destructive, hurtful behavior than the solution or the cure. I think the fear of disconnection can make us dangerous. And here, I think it's even more profound when we apply that to our relationship with Hashem. I'll um, I'll be honest and I'll say when I was growing up, even though I was brought up in a very loving and very religiously modern Orthodox oriented home, I grew I, the school I went to was the teachers were far more ultra Orthodox. And one of the things that they really kind of imparted to us was this idea of intense guilt. And for many, many years, it took me a long time to throw the shackles of that burden 
off and to recognize that my relationship to Hashem, to God, can be founded not on shame, but on guilt. And that guilt can be constructive and guilt can create relationship. Whereas shame for me was a breaking of the relationship. And I think Dafka, the entire process of Teshuvah is one that is channeled towards the recreation, the reconnection. That's why it's called Teshuvah, to return, to return to the relationship with Hashem. And that can only be done from a point of constructive guilt rather and destructive shame. I'm going to bring you, um, there's one more example, which we're not going to read inside, but that's the example of David HaMelech. It's the most beautiful example when David HaMelech, the King David, did, you know, a sin that was totally, you know, I always say, if, if you think people are bad and politicians are bad today, you all you need to do is go back to the Bible and you'll feel fine, right? David HaMelech, not only did he take a married woman, he tried to kill her or he killed her husband, right? And then it, there's so many things there that are just almost your mouth should drop. And Natan Hanavi comes to him and he gives him a whole parable in order to allow him to repent. But there's three things that go on in this story. He talks to him and he says that he talks to him about the idea uh, of, of a parable of uh, sheep and, and, and various other things. But I, I don't want to get into it now. The, the point here is, is super important that what he does, the way in which he does it, the prophet Nathan is to show him, David, Hamelech, the king, to show him that he still has the potential to return, to reconnect with God, to reconnect with himself. And he does it through a parable in order for David HaMelech to realize what he's done himself, in order for him not to feel such a great degree of total destruction that it won't allow for reconstruction. Um, the third source I want to look at in terms of our tradition is a very interesting Gemara. And um, I'm just very aware of the time. I can't remember what time we started. So I don't know what time I have till. Rav Shmuley, do you, can you just direct me? Yes, um, we, we have 20 minutes in total. We want to include Q&A in there as well, if possible. Okay, so so like seven, eight minutes. Great, great. Okay, okay. So in this beautiful um, Talmud, Talmudic narrative or Talmudic story, we have the story of Rabbi Yochanan, very famous story of Rabbi Yochanan and Reish Lakish. And they were the paradigmatical chebruta, right? They were the paradigmatical learning partners. And we see, I'm not going to read the whole thing inside, but we see that one day Rabbi Yochanan, who was totally disconnected from Judaism and from learning, um, um, Rachel, and and he and he's beautiful. And Rachel Lakish eventually um, brings him back. He brings him back to this, right? He says, use your strength for something good. Um, he says, I've got a beautiful sister, come and marry her, et cetera, et cetera. And we see that they create this incredible chavruta between themselves. And then one day they're arguing in the Bet Midrash. And here I'm going to read from inside. And um, they're talking about at what point a knife is mekabel tum'ah. At what point a knife becomes impure. And they're arguing. And Rabbi Yochanan says when it's forged in the fire. And Rachel Atish says when it's rinsed with water. And Rabbi Yochanan turns to him and says, 
The bandit knows his trade. What's Rabbi Yochanan doing? He's reminding him of his past. And Reish Lakish says, how did you benefit me? When I was a bandit, a bandit, I was called to the master and here I'm called the master. And he said to him, I helped you because I brought you close under the wings of the divine presence. Rabbi Yochanan became depressed. Reish Lakish became sick. His sister came crying to Rabbi Yochanan. He said, do it, forgive Reish Lakish or pray for him. He said, leave your orphans, I will revive him. She said, do it because of my widowhood. He said, the widow should trust in me. Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish passed away and Rabbi Yochanan was very pained by his passing. The rabbi said, who will go and help calm Rabbi Yochanan? And they said, let Rabbi Elazar ben Pazat go. So he's sharp in his learning. And he went and he sat in front of Rabbi Yochanan. Why is Rabbi Yochanan so depressed? Because he's lost his chavruti, he's lost his greatest learning partner. And why did he lose him? He, loosed, he lost him because, of, because he shamed him. Because he realized that he had taken it too far. That when he originally brought him back to Judaism, he did it through opening him up. But in this, in this point, he did it by closing him, by destroying him, by reminding him, him in his past, by shaming him. And then they bring another chavruta. And Rabbi Yochanan says, sorry, and every time Rabbi Yochanan said something, Rabbi Elazar cited a supporting Tanaitic source. And Rabbi Yochanan said, are you like the son of Lakish? And he said, when I, when I said something, the son of Lakish would ask me 24 questions and I would respond with 24 answers. And as a result, learning increased. And he walked away and tore his garment. And he says, where are you, son of Lakish? Where are you, son of Lakish? And he cried until he lost his mind. He asked for mercy and he passed. The rabbis asked for mercy and he passed away. This is a classic story of when the shame destroys two souls here. The straight shame destroys two souls. That it is a prototypical story of the role of the other. At the beginning, the role of the other is transformative for the eye. At the end, the role of the other is destructive to death for the eye. And I think that, I mean, there's so much to unpack here, but we don't have time. Even the, the subject in which they disagreed of a knife and the role of the knife and when a knife is pure and when a knife is impure, right? We always talk about digging a knife into someone's chest. When are we doing it in a pure way? When are we doing it in an impure way? There's so many things here to unpack in the story, but what I want us to take out for now is really to go back to, to, to where we started, to Marcel Pui, to Chuba, to changing the past, to saying, how do I look at the world? I need to always look at the world through the eyes of the other. And that is what Rabbi Yachanan was saying. When, the, when, when they brought the second Chavruta in to try and learn with him, and he kept agreeing with him, he said, no, that's not the point of the other. The point of the other is to force me to see outside myself. Self-transcendence comes when I see through the eyes of the other when I recognize that there's something bigger than just myself in the world. David Brooks, in his book, The Second Mountain, David Brooks, the uh, New York, uh, he writes in the New York Times, and he's a very well-known um, intellectual um, writer and um, journalist. 
And he has two beautiful books. One's called, the first one's called The Road to Character and the second one's called The Second Mountain. Um, and in both of those books, he talks very much about the role of the other. I'm gonna, I'm gonna actually skip the first. I just wanna read from The Second Mountain. In The Second Mountain, he speaks about the idea that in some ways, all of us have two mountains in our lives. The first mountain is when we try to develop ourselves and we are promoting what he calls the uh, our uh, resume virtues, how successful I am, how wonderful I am, how great I am, what I'm selling to the world. And it's all about the I. It's all about taking and taking and taking. And at some point in all our lives, we go through what he calls the season of suffering, and that's the valley. And the biggest question is how we rise from the valley, how we climb our second mountain. And our second mountain is what he calls eulogy virtues. Our second mountain is not about what I'm selling and what I'm taking from the world around me. It's about what I'm giving. It's about self-transcendence. It's about how I recognize that pure joy, real happiness. And this goes back to what, how we introduced it about talking about um, children. Joy and happiness is when I'm able to transcend myself and recognize what I have to give to the world. He says the revolution will be moral or it will not be at all. Modern society needs a moral ecology that rejects the reigning hyper-individualism of the moment. We need to articulate a creed that puts relation, not the individual at the center, and which articulates in clear form the truths we all know, that we are formed by relationship. We are nourished by relationship and we long for relationship. Life is not a solitary journey. It is, a building, it is building a home together. It's a process of being formed by attachments and then forming attachments in turn. This is a great chain of generations passing down gifts to one another. I'm gonna finish with Rabbi Sachs and I'm gonna bring it all together. All else falls away when two people meet and each is fully open to the other. What happens when two selves truly meet is dialogue, not in the platonic sense of the collaborative search for truth, but in the more mystical sense of an unscripted encounter in which we cross the abyss separating self from self and meet in the, I can't pronounce that, the interhuman or intersubjective, where one loneliness meets another and finds grace. Neither attempts to change the other, but both are changed by the very act of reaching out. And here I want to bring now um, everything that we've spoken about and everything that we've said. And I want to bring it all together. I want to go back to, to, to how we began. We began by asking the question of how does the role of other inform our own self-transformation, especially during this period of Elul, during the period of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and the process that we all take all underway. And we spoke about the idea that in many ways, the other can either be constructive or destructive. We can use the other to um, allow us to see ourselves, to self-transcend, to go out, out, outside ourselves. The other is in Lebanus's language, and, and as Professor Ephraim Meir spoke about, the other is the person that calls us to duty, calls us to command, calls us to ethical imperative. We see the other as a means by which to give, right? David Brooks says to climb the second mountain, to recognize that there's more than just the eye. But the other can also be used as a um, catalyst for me to come face to face in the mirror and see my downfall. And, we, and, and that is the role of the other in which it can go one of two ways. It can either go towards shame or it can go towards constructive guilt. A shame culture is one 
in which the other comes to critique from a point of hate. A guilt culture is which the other comes to critique from the point of love. And what I've tried to show you through the sources is that in the Jewish view, or certainly in the Jewish sources that certainly that we've seen today, there is no question that we are called upon to change. We are called upon to be better people. And there's no question that we are called upon to do that from the outside, that it can't be done just by the eye. But the question is, and I think what the Jewish response is, that that call has to be a call that is full of construction and not destruction, and therefore has to be a call of um, guilt, like Natan Hanavi to David HaMelech, or Reish Lakish and, and Rabbi Yochanan, and not shame. And the question we need to ask ourselves today, I think more than ever in the culture in which we live, how do we, how do we, um, kind of encourage, especially the youth today, to create such a culture. And I think one of the, the, the most, or perhaps the, the, the most important things is to really approach the other from the perspective of love rather than the perspective of hate. So with that, I'm gonna finish and I'm gonna open it up if there's any questions. Amazing, amazing. So thoughtful to think about this with you. Um... Friends, we would love to uh, we'd love to hear from you. Yes, hi, Dr. Mona Fishman. Hi. I just I'm just loving this. Um, you know, there's a beautiful Talmudic passage. I don't remember where it is about the chavruta, and that chavruta omituta. Yeah. Well, there's oh chavruta omituta, right? Which yeah. is uh, both from Choni Amagel and I think also from yeah. the Rabbi Yochanan story, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but there's also a discussion that a chavruta should be loving study partners, um, and loving and challenging that you you're, you're bumping up against your chavruta who's helping you to grow but in a loving way and, yeah. and that both people are open to learning from each other as opposed to the and i think there was a it was in the Talmud, i think is a distinction between that and kind of like sparring partners where you're trying to score a point and stab the other person like with the knife i um, i know which one i'm trying to think where it is i know exactly what you're talking about that it gives those two images Right. Yeah, it's really the ethics of chavruta, and how do we how do we prod each other to grow without making each other shamed in a toxic way? Okay, and I really I I really think that it's it's I always find it so profound that the Gemara thousands and thousands of years ago was already grappling with issues that our generation are finding immensely challenging. Um, you know, way before the internet, way before social media, way before any of those things came into being. And today we're grappling with this question again. And in a, in a way, our ancient texts provide us with the question. And, and I'm not sure if they provide us necessarily with, a, with an absolute remedy, but they definitely provide us with responses um, to, to the challenge. So, yeah, it's beautiful. You're right. Awesome. Hi, Lauren. Hi. Um and thank you very much, uh, Dr. White, for this really inspiring shiur. And uh, I don't know if you remember me. I used to study with you in Zerkonyakov. I do. I do. When I saw your name, I, it was so familiar. Yeah. I, I I truly miss it. That was the hardest part about living in Zerkonyakov, leaving Zerkonyakov. Anyways, my question is, um, and, and there are many like me who are like older people who live alone, we haven't been around other people so much um, because of the pandemic, which is not yet over. 
But can the inspiration of the other, the catalyst, be the divine or just the concept of the Jewish people, the Jewish community in which we live? Thanks. A hundred percent. And I think that's one of the reasons I wanted to bring the idea of the call of the shofar to show that the other doesn't necessarily mean the human other. Um, absolutely. It, can, it can totally mean, I think, number one, I think the, the thing that's so profound to me about Jewish tradition is that it always kind of um, tries to... Um, it tries to navigate a balance between the individual and the communal. And we're always trying to navigate that balance. Um, you know, even in the sense of I, I, when my father passed away uh, four years ago um, and I said Kadesh for him. And I remember so clearly that I, there were moments where all I wanted to do was wrap myself in my blanket and just be alone in my bed. And I did not want to go outside and I didn't want to encounter people and I didn't want to have to go and say Kaddish amongst, you know, other people. And yet it, I was I was drawn to do that because that's what I felt I needed or I had to do. And I think there's always that very, that oscillation or even that tension, I would say, between the individual. And so I'm saying the call from the other doesn't necessarily even have to be, as you said, you know, t- today in, and, and COVID has really caused us to really think about this issue in a very deep way. I don't think it has to necessarily be another person, uh, um, but I think it can be the concept of the community or the concept of the shofar or the concept of something outside of myself. So yeah, I would definitely think it's not just the other in a very literal way. Nice to see you again. (laughs) Who else wants to jump in? Hi. Hi, Hi, I don't know if this will actually help anyone though, but it did help me. Two years ago during a little, what I did is I, well, it was during a lot of lockdown time anyway, not exactly lockdown, but pretty close to it. I kept a journal of just dialoguing. And basically that was my, uh, (laughs) that was my shuva process. And it was a lot and it worked wonders. So I don't know if that helps anyone else who, especially if you live alone, like me also that like, um, basically you can have those, you know, like concept of the other, if it, even if it's God, you know, so. Totally. I, I should have added that. You're 100% right. Sorry, I should have added that in the answer that, of course, mm-hmm. God is, 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 the, is the supreme other, right? right. Um, and, and for sure, and I love that idea of uh, journaling. And, and I, I see that almost as, you know, that's the externalization of, of the I to, in dialogue with, with something outside. So, so 100%, I love that. Thank you. Time for one more. Hi, Nona. Hi. One or two more. Yeah. <clears throat> It's interesting. I was reading right before um, this program um, something that Glennon Doyle had written, um, who was, you know, she's in the Brene Brown world a lot, um, but about um, uh, women and and trusting yourself and listening to yourself. And I was a little bit um, triggered by David Brooks, uh, you know, conversation about our individualistic culture. I think sometimes our especially for women, lots of our lives, we are always defined in relationship to others and are, are we meeting the expectations of others and um, taking um, that uh, time, that um, quiet, that away from things to listen to our own voice, which is often the voice of the divine. She talks about um, going into her closet, closing the door, being 
alone and quiet enough to just stop reacting to everything and really listen. And what she's listening to, what she finds that she hears is, is what she calls the voice of the divine. And I, and I think that that is an interesting um, um, way to think about that individualism. Um, is that always a negative um, or is it important to be grounded enough to know your own ethical compass, your own center, what you believe before you react um, always to another. So I just wanted to toss that in there. I love, love, love that. Um, thank you, Nona. I, I absolutely love it. And I'll say even more that if we had time, which we don't, um, I would expand here a lot more because on the one hand, the class was obviously about the call of the other, but I think what you brought a few really important points number one I think for sure as women we are listening to so many voices outside ourselves that we often don't actually listen to what is inside and I would take even once I just finished last year doing a course on Yosef and the brothers and one of the things that I, I, I learned throughout the course and I, I really hadn't noticed this before I really grappled with the text is that the voice that Yosef never has dialogue with God. There's not one dialogue between him and God in, in the entire Yosef narratives. And yet he always mentions God, right? He always says, God sent me the interpretation, but we never see God sending him any interpretation. And we see he's the ultimate dream interpreter. And I don't have time to show you in the text, but it's it's so profound. What what If you look carefully, what you'll see is that he listens very, very carefully, he listens to the other and to his own inside voice. It takes him time because when he's younger, he's a total narcissist, right? So it takes him time to develop that in, inner voice that, you, that you're calling. And I would say is exactly what you're saying is the divine voice within. And when he begins to develop the divine voice within, then he becomes supremely aware of the other outside, which is why he is able to interpret the baker and the butler's dream so well, because he notices that their faces had fallen. If you look at the text, it says he saw that they were, they were I can't remember the exact words, but harona, or maybe they were angry or the faces had fallen. Meaning when he is in tune with his inner divine voice, then he can notice and be empathetic towards somebody outside the self. So I think there's a lot more to say here. And obviously massive, you know, we can expand it in many, many directions. Um, the aim today was really to look at it from the prism of Teshuvah and the prism of the other in a more narrow perspective. But I think I'm really happy that you, you brought that last comment to us because I think it for sure shows us that this must be and can be expanded in, in many different directions. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much, Dr. Tanya White, for your beautiful presentation and everyone for your engagement. And um, we wish everyone a Shana Tova. We also hope you'll join us tomorrow in our in our VBM learning with Dr. Alana Stein-Hain on nature and revelation, what the Jewish calendar teaches us about the relationship. Next week with Harris Bohr out of London, I think. Staying human, can Judaism speak to the issues raised by artificial intelligence? And with Rabbanit Leah Sarna, God's Prayer, the central image of Slichot, that just scratches the surface. Hope you'll join us. Have a great Thank rest of your day. Thank you all. Thank you for having me. It was great meeting you all. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org 
to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.